0: morning. I think I say this every time, but I'm not Johnny. And so if you're expecting to hear Johnny, I'm sorry, but Johnny does exactly what I'm about to do, which is preach the word. So my hope is that you came not to hear Johnny, but to hear the word preached. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Today is the Sunday before Reformation Day. What day is that? October 31st. We look back on uh, what October 31st for Christians for a long time has been... uh, the Opportunity to remind ourselves of what we have been, uh, what we are doing right now. Worshipping in spirit and truth. Because on this day, on that day, which Protestants look back and say, thank God for the light that he has showed his church. For a long time it was in darkness. A long time it was held down by a, a way of, that would not lead to life, but leads to death. See, the Reformation dealt with one fundamental question, and it was this, in simplified form. How can one be made right before God? In less simple form, how can I be justified before a holy God? Because the answer for Roman Catholics was, do a bunch of good things. Do penance. Do good works. Outweigh your bad ones. Go to confession. Go to a priest. Have them absolve you. Over and over and over. It just led people to hell. Right? And yet, today we get to say, with full hearts, thank the Lord for October 31st, 1517. Thank the Lord for people like Martin Luther. Thank the Lord for people like John Calvin, Jan Hus, Zing Zwingli. You can name a whole bunch of people. But here's the thing. It's because of this question, how might I be saved? How might, how might one be made right before God is what spurred this whole thing. The leaders of the church, the priests, the Pope. The rectors of the churches, the pastors, they lived on an high society, not lowly poverty. They were living off the fat of the people's work, much like Eli's sons. And if you remember what Eli's sons did, they lived off the fat of the people's sacrifices and they said, I'm going to take this for myself. And what happened to them? They all died. Yeah. And then late in the 1400s, God saw saw it fit that the swan of the Reformation would be born, Martin Luther and on his way to becoming a lawyer, in a really bad storm, he turned his life toward becoming a monk. And after becoming a monk, he realized that he couldn't actually, the church's way of salvation couldn't actually fix his problem that plagued him. the sin that plagued him could not be rid of. He couldn't, get, he couldn't confess enough, he couldn't do enough, it wasn't going to be enough. But to rid him of the idea that he still had some sin that stained his conscience. And he was right. There's not enough good works that you can do, hear me, that you that will save you. There's not enough good things to believe that will save you. There's not enough anything in this world that will save you except for faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, he could not do enough nor believe enough to rid him of the idea that he still had some stain of sin on his conscience. And later in his writings, he describes this feeling as the folly of pride. You know, see, pride says a couple things about us. Pride says, "I can do my own thing and be okay before God." Pride says, "I don't need anybody else's help." Pride says, "I don't need God to help me either." We functionally act like this. I don't know if you've noticed this, but you you go through your life, and one of the reasons why we pray is to kind of like not just express our needs before God, but express our dependence on Him. And as a Christian, you're prayer life says a lot about you. It says a lot about how much you actually believe that your pride is nothing. And it can get you nowhere. But you need the one who created all things and sustains all things by his powerful word. So today we're all going to see how God deals with our pride like he did in Luther's and help us to actually grasp hold of his promises. Promises of life everlasting. Promises of never leave and forsake us. Promises that we will be a blessing to the nations. Not just that, but we will actually be able to glorify God himself. These are the promises that we are laying hold of when we forsake our pride. Because pride blinds us. It blinds us. It keeps us from grasping on God's promises. So as you know, I've been preaching through the life of Joseph. Some of you may not know that, but I've been preaching through the life of Joseph for now going on I didn't count, but uh, years. years at this point. Think, think Dean. Uh, years at this point, and we have finally come to the apex of Joseph's story. If you think about narrative arcs and all that stuff, this is like the moment of conflict, the moment of truth. Everything is going to come after this, this is good news, falling action, if you want to So as we pick up in our journey through Joseph's life, we'll see that God has been faithful and always will be faithful and will continue to be faithful to his promises. That's a good thing. God promises Abraham that he would bring about rest for him and his offspring. And he uses this story, Moses uses this story to show how God has been faithful and will continue to be faithful despite our sin. The story of Joseph is just that the narrative of how God faithfully fulfills his promises to his people through an unexpected character. You and I are unexpected characters. Most of you do not have Jewish blood, and so therefore you wouldn't be with the nation of Israel, right? We're unexpected characters, but this unexpected character, his name is Judah. See, we first encountered encountered Judah in chapter 37 when he suggests that they sell Joseph into slavery instead of killing him, like that was better. Then they, in chapter 38, he leaves his family, the portion that we read this morning, he leaves his family to find his own way in the world. After that, he takes a wife from a forbidden people, the Canaanites, thinking it's going to be better for him, mistakes his daughter-in-law for a prostitute, and a whole bunch of consequences come to head in Genesis 38. See, Judah is anything but a godly man or a picture of any saint anywhere that you would want to follow. He's a man of pride, a man of folly. But in this last chapter, in chapter 43, which we came from, Judah demonstrated something that would never have happened prior to the end of chapter 38, and definitely not prior to uh, anything before 37. He had some huge changes in his life. He went from being calloused to careful, from self-seeking to self-sacrificing, he offered himself as collateral for Benjamin's life in 43 for his father, so that he might actually be able to eat food. And today, again, they will today he will again demonstrate his heart change and his offer for the well-being of his father. Moving forward, he moves from inward-oriented, gazing at his own navel, filling his own belly, to others-oriented, caring more about what his father needed and loved and wanted than what he wanted. He went from pride filled to a humble servant. See, pride gets in the way of our joy, doesn't it? Pride gets in the way of our repentance even. It absolutely gets in the way of repentance. It gets in the way of our understanding of our need of God's mercy and God's grace. In essence, pride is a capital sin. It's a capital sin because it does this. It it makes a God out of our own reasoning, our own experiences, our own faculties, and our own abilities. And it, at minimum, diminishes what we think God is capable of. And it definitely diminishes our active need for him in our lives. And so through Judah, Moses reveals to us the pattern of humility and sacrifice that only one man, Christ Jesus, can perfect. And through Judah, we see that what true faith and repentance looks like. And what it takes to obtain peace and reconciliation, not only with God, but with man. When we get to that reconciliation, we will see God deal with the pride of Judah and his brothers to preserve his promises. Because guess what? Pride blinds us from, and them from grasping on, holding on to God's promises. So our text is long, chapter 44 and 45. That's 1,567 words. And I'm going to try and read all of them. If I don't, they're all in front of you. Um, and so I'm going to give you some like guardrails for the, the three sections that we're going to hit up. The first one being 44, 1 to 13. So verses 1 to 13 of chapter 44 is revelation is God's means of preservation. Okay. Revelation is God's means of preservation. Chapter 44, verse 14 through 34. That's to the end of the chapter. It says, is this, repentance is God's plan for preservation. So repentance is God's plan for preservation. And then all of chapter 45 is reconciliation. It's God's picture of preservation. Reconciliation is God's picture of preservation. I'll explain more as we go. But your main takeaway is this. God's promises preserve God's people. God's promises preserve God's people. So as we come to the text, I'm not going to have you stand uh, because, like I said, 1,500 words. If you were to do the math, that's about 15 minutes of reading. I'm not going to read it all straight either. So I'm going to comment on it as we go. It's a little bit different. That way we can get a full sense of what we're actually reading. Okay? So if you have your Bibles, open them up. Let's see to Genesis 44. Genesis 44 says this. Then he commanded the steward, who's he, Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, fill the man's sacks with food as much as they could carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did, as Joseph told him. So what we're seeing is actually the second test of Joseph's brothers, right? And a lot of it is just like the same test with one twist. Right? One twist. And why is the the question we have to ask ourselves when we're reading this is why the silver cup? Why his cup? Why would his cup be so important? Well, number two number one thing is because it's the host cup. And the host cup is not touched by anybody but two people: the taster of the food. And the host himself. Okay? So we we find this out from earlier. You know, we have the baker. And we have the... um, Oh, it's escaping me. Cupbearer, thank you. That's so simple. Uh, The cupbearer. Both are um, condemned because they they had some plan. Concocted some plan. And the cupbearer is responsible for tasting everything that goes to Pharaoh's table. It's a really big deal to touch the host's cup. In fact, it's like a punishable offense by death. And so, not only are they violating hospitality, but they're violating like cultural norms and, you know, safety issues. The silver cup that is there is not just because it's Joseph's cup. It's because it's like, yeah, you don't touch that thing. That's, that's the one thing in the house that you're not allowed to be near. It is the one thing that can condemn you to death if you touch it. Verse three, as soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. By the way, what was the one thing they were worried about losing? Their donkeys. They were, they were saying that, they were gonna, that Joseph was going to bring them in and take their donkeys and put them in slavery. But they got what? They got their freedom and they got their donkeys. But they weren't worried about their sacks being filled with money and weren't worried about any of those other things that were really mattered. They had gone only a short distance from the city and now Joseph said to his steward, "Follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, have you repaid? Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this." That that by the way, that last little portion, you have done evil in doing this. Can be rendered very simply, you have done evil. Like it happened in the past. And it's still continuing, okay? It's not just that the cup is gone. It's the the fact that it's judgment upon their souls. And we see that as we keep going. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words, and they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? The idea being, hey, we've done everything you said. We even did more than that. We tried to return the thing that we totally t- we, we took. Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. And he said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. So the brothers say, look, you can kill the one who has the cup. I'm so confident that it does, we don't have it. That you can kill him, and we'll be your servants if it's actually a thing. And he goes, no, 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 hold on. No, we're not going to be so hasty. I will just take him as my servant, and you all will go free. He's a wise man, and a very merciful man. Then each man, verse 11, Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And what did they find? The money, the grain, right, in their own sacks. And he searched, verse 12, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, ramping up the possibility of somebody that is more important than themselves being found out with the silver cup. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. They, then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. And they fell down before him on the, to the ground the third time. Uh, Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? Now, is he saying that he practices divination? No, he's saying it's possible, right? It's possible, and this is the instrument. This is not just any cup. It's not just the host cup. It's a magic cup, right? And so you're violating not just the idea of the norms, the cultural norms, the hospitality of the days or the security but you took my magic cup. Now is he lying? No, he's he's saying I can I can it's potential. And Judas says, "said What shall we say to my lord? And what shall we speak? Oh, how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my lord's servants, both." We and he also whose hand the cup has been found. So he's actually calling himself all guilty for something that they did in the past, right? The guilt that is on their conscience God has brought to the forefront. Then Judah went up to him and said, now pay attention. I'm going to give you a Bible reading trick or a tip here. Anytime you see a long speech or a poem or a song or a prayer and they're they're dedicated a large amount of space on your page, it's important. Right? It's really important because it gives you an insight into what the author is trying to get you to see as to how everybody's thinking, number one. Number two, it's also an interpretive key for most of the other parts of the passages that are around it. Okay, So it's important. This is important because this is the longest speech in Genesis. And in this speech, we find the very middle of Joseph's story, which happens to be the most important verse in the story. So listen up. Verse 18, then Judah went up to him and said, O oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in the Lord's ears, and let not your anger against let not your anger against your servant burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father and an old, an old man and a younger brother, the child of his old age. Uh, his brother is dead and alone. He is left two of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, and if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. He basically puts it back in their court and says, you want to eat? Do you want blessing? Then you do what I say. Right, but here's the crazy part is that in this, in the midst of this, he's trying to remind Joseph of something that he probably has embedded in his mind, right? He already knows all of this. And this is, then we come to verse 24 to 29 where he doesn't know this part. And when we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons, one left me. And I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs to evil. In evil to Sheol. His life is bound up with his youngest son. Much like at the very end of 37, when they find out Joseph died, he forsakes all of his sons and daughters, right? He, he says, I have nobody left. And yet he has 11 sons and a lot more daughters left. Right? He's, he's a, he was very selfish at the time. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, the, and the boy is not with us, then As his life is bound up with the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the great hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. And here's the most important central verse of this whole story. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy, as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Have you noticed how many times he said father? He went from being a man, noticed a man that was careless, and didn't care about anybody else, wanted his own thing, got a few bucks for shifting his youngest brother off, to caring way more about his father than it seems like anybody else does. His father's well-being is so important to him that he mentions him well over 20 times in his all of his speeches combined. But in this case, it's like he he just knows, he cares so much for his father's well-being that that's all that matters. And so just willingly, able, and, and going to offer himself up as a sacrifice. Then Joseph, chapter 45, verse 1, could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed by his presence dismayed by his presence. They were stopped. Their mouths were shut when they came into the presence of the one they had no idea who he was. And he reveals himself and says, I am Joseph. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. He could have said anything else, right? He could have said, off to the brig with you. He could have said, go to prison. Spend all that time in slavery like I did. You know what? I, you know, better. I'm just going to put you in a noose but he didn't. He said, come near, draw near, come near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourself because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. That's the key here. God sent me before you to preserve life for the famine has been in the land for two years. And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. It's been 22 years, guys. 22 years since he's seen his father. 22 years of nothing but harsh living. Not living with his father in luxury. Not with his coat. Not with anything that he knew but in slavery. And now 22 years later he's revealing himself to the brothers who put him in who saw him last, put him in that carriage, shackled his neck in his hands, and sold him. But God, he has made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all his house and rule. And ruler over all the land of Egypt, hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me and you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you for there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and in the eyes of your brothers, brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. Remember, he's been speaking through an interpreter. So they haven't heard him speak anything but Egyptian or whatever it is that they spoke. He's now speaking their language in his voice, speaking directly to them. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother, his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept around his neck, and he kissed all his brothers, all of them, and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. Remember, they couldn't even talk peaceably with him in thirty-seven. They couldn't talk a oh, nice word, a kind, a kind word, a loving word. But now they speak with him, almost with joy. Then the report was heard in Pharaoh's house. Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And then, as you skip down because I know, uh, I know that there is a lot to say here. Skip down to uh, 28, to our 25. He's given. Uh, he talks to Pharaoh. Pharaoh gives him everything he said that he's going to give him. And then he tells him to come. Don't leave anything or leave everything behind. Come and see me. Come and dwell in my land. Do not quarrel on the way. Verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive. Joseph is still alive, and he is the ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb. How many other lies have they told him? How could this be true? But when they told him of all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent, had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father was revived, and Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive, and I will go and see him before I die. What a marvelous story of how God reconciles his people together and to himself. So the question is what? We, we could say a lot about this passage, right? But I want to ask, the, what is the thing that we're supposed to walk away from reading this passage? This long, 1,500 words. It's this first, first point. Revelation is God's means of preservation. Revelation is God's means of preservation. See, pride blinds us to re- the reality of God's promises. So we must be humbled by his revelation of our sin. Our guilt needs to be revealed so that we might actually know and grasp on God's promises. This is what happens in 44, 1 to 13. Joseph devises a second test for his brothers. He orders their gold returned to their sacks and a silver cup to be placed in Benjamin's bag. And in this, we see that God's plan of redemption, of, God, of God's plan of redemption, of Jacob's family uses a particular type of means an instrument, a mechanism within creation to bring about his ultimate plan. Joseph's silver cup is one of those means to bring the revelation of the sin of his brothers. Remember how the, how the brothers were saying, our guilt has been found out? And what uh, Joseph's saying to them, you know, this is your guilt, basically. See, God providentially places the brothers in Joseph's power so that he, God, can reveal what hinders their reconciliation to himself and to Joseph. And throughout the account of Joseph and his brother's life, this is just a repeated pattern of providence, to draw them back together for the good of the whole world. God's means of God means reconciliation thus far has been, what? Slavery, famine, and heartache. The possibility of losing their brother and their father. Nothing good, squishy, comfortable. But in each case, God has been drawing them nearer together and nearer to himself for his ultimate purpose. So when the official comes and claims that they have stolen Joseph's silver cup, which they hadn't, they were pretty confident, right? So much that they were willing to say the person who is found with it will die. And when the cup is revealed to be in Benjamin's sack, they all mourn and show their grief together for uh, by tearing their clothes see God's means of preservation in the line of Jacob looks first like revealing the hidden and concealed sins of his brothers he's humbling their prideful hearts as they proclaim their innocence and they should know as well as you do that this has happened once before and so to claim something so silly uh would be you know foolish at, at minimum, because guess what? They have finite knowledge of their own reality. You and I, do we know what is going on even outside of ourselves in this room? Don't, I mean, Can you read someone else's mind? Can you understand what's going on? Just like what's coming, what's coming for lunch? Some of you have a plan, some of you don't. I don't have a plan. But even that, that lunchtime, that what's going to happen during that time, you don't know what's happening. You don't know what God's doing. You don't know how he's using that as a means to bring you closer to himself. In case in point, they don't even know whose house they had been staying with, staying in, or who they had been speaking to until Joseph told them. So instead of recognizing the possibility of being wrong, they foolishly declare their innocence. And God uses this instrument of a silver cup to reveal the reality of their hearts. Reminding them of the 20 shekels of silver that they sold Joseph for, he gives them a silver cup. And that silver cup is a means to draw out the brothers' guilt and sin. It's the two-by-four that they need to understand who is God and what matters. See, he tears down the brothers' pride in their good deeds. Remember they made that checklist? We did all the things you said. He lays waste to their self-righteous attitudes, and he reveals their deepest and most concealed sin through a groups, through a silver cup. God still does this today. He uses means to reveal how utterly depraved we are truly are. He shows us our sinfulness in light of his holiness. He demonstrates that our hearts and minds cannot truly be free of the guilt of sin without some atonement made for them or a, a payment. But guess what? You can't pay enough because you don't have enough. Last time I checked, you're a finite being who lives 80 to something years on this earth, 80 to 100 years on this earth, if you're lucky. But your fine is infinite because you have offended a holy, infinite God. His perfect righteousness cannot be assuaged by anything but an infinite fine that needs to be paid. This is what Martin Luther knew all too well. He would go on to confession for hours on end, confessing every sin that he had committed, that he might have committed, and that every sin that he might commit later on. So much so that his confessor would say this to him Hey, come back when you've actually sinned some, in some way that we can actually confess for. And then you're wasting my time, basically. But he had no peace because he could not uh, truly know the extent of his sin. His pride blinded to the reality of that extent of his sin, he thought. And he was taught this, but granted that he could confess enough to be made right with God, that he could do enough, he could partake of enough sacraments to be made righteous before God. And the reality is he had none of that. His guilt was just like the brothers, concealed and hidden and needed to be surfaced. For all of us, that's the same testimony of our lives, right? We were all once unbelievers with the same issue. We were blind to the reality of our sin and we needed... Uh, some way to be told that all have sinned sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is nothing that you can do and there is no mistaking that every one of us were once characterized by sin alone. Fully dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 1, 2, 3, 4. Right? But God, being rich in mercy, is what we all needed to hear. You needed needed the revelation of your sins so that you could be told that there's mercy for you. God in his kindness reached into our hearts and revealed his goodness and terrible perfection at the same time. He said, I'm good and I'm holy. I'm good, so good that I would give you mercy. But the standard is perfection that nobody can fulfill. His word and his spirit are the what regenerates us to make us new so that we can actually see the reality of our sin. There's no mistaking that every Christian has actually had this silver cup moment. Some of us have been way more dramatic than others, right? Some of us came from some really bad background. Some of us came up in the church. But here's the deal. We've all had the reality of our sin brought to our forefront of our eyes, humbled by our sin, and made to acknowledge that we are not as good as we thought we were. It is our pride that had to be dealt with, and our sin to be resurfaced that was concealed. Our silver cup, like theirs, needed to be the mechanism of the judgment of God. But the good news is this not that we have sin, but He promises that He is faithful and just to forgive. The good news is that the ones who have open hands, contrite hearts, the ones knowing that the only thing that He can truly provide is what they need, the ones who realize they're sick and need of a Savior, the ones who realize they are not righteous, will be made righteous. They will be given forgiveness, but our pride must be dealt with. So revelation is God's means of preservation, particularly for his people. But not only is God's means of preservation uh, having to do something with the revelation of our sin, but also with the revelation of that he is uh, bringing us somewhere. He doesn't leave us dead in our sins and trespasses. No, it is the beginning of a beautiful process of repentance. And so without repentance, a lot of things don't happen, right? Without repentance, uh, God's plan really doesn't take shape. Repentance is God's plan of preservation. The understanding of our pride and simple desires must be revealed so that we may actually repent, turning from our self-righteous ways and turning to the preserving hands of God. So let's look back at the text. Once the silver cup of guilt is revealed... Judah comes to his brother's side. He again places himself in, this, in his stead, follows through with his word, stands in the way of his brother, and demonstrates his heart change by seeking Joseph's mercy. And he realizes the, the reality of his sin, and he's about to repent of it. He says this, What shall we say to my Lord? This is what reality of sin does to us. What can I say? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? The answer is, yeah, can't. God has found out the guilt of your servants. Judah recognizes the situation is hopeless and does what he would never have done at the beginning of the narrative. He's the one that had nothing but selfish desires until the very last chapter that we read. So first, he offers himself as a pledge for bending and safety to his father, and then he follows through with his word. If you remember back in 38, what does he promise Tamar? His last son, Right? What happens? He doesn't give him his last son when he matures, right? Instead, all of that nasty uh, reality of sin and selfishness and pride comes to the forefront and he fathers a child through Tamar. So instead of not, you know, instead of being that guy who says something and does another, he now says something and follows through and demonstrates his heart change. This is a changed man. He does what Adam in the garden did not do. So, if you notice, Judah's taking responsibility for the sins of his brothers by trying to place himself as a substitute for Benjamin and his father's life. Okay, So that's kind of what's happening here. Adam had the same opportunity in the garden. But what happened in the garden? He said, the woman you gave me. He pointed the finger after she ate of the tree. Mm -hmm. And he ate of the tree, by the way, standing there. Instead of being responsible for her sin and saying, I'm going to stand in the way of her and I'm going to say, take me instead, he says, that woman over there, she did. not And the problem is, is he's pointing, like my mom used to say, three other fingers right back at himself. The cancer of sin entered into creation because Adam failed to take responsibility for the actions of the ones he was responsible for. But, his cowardice is not what Judah imbibes. Judah stands in between Joseph and Benjamin, offering himself as a substitutionary sacrifice out of love for his father. That's a different. That's a different ball game, guys. God has orchestrated Judah's complete 180 from selfishness to selflessness. Instead of concealing their sin any longer, he divulges the true reason for their fear, and it's the love of his father. And why he doesn't come straight out and say, "I'm sorry for putting you into slavery." I'm sorry that I sold you for some money. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. He doesn't come out and fire straight away with an apology of the kind that we would be used to, used to. He does demonstrate his repentant heart through his actions and his words. Repentance is truly God's plan for God's, for his people's preservation. And let's just do a thought experiment for a second. Without Judah's repentance, Joseph would not have had the compassion and outburst that he had, right? And the revelation of who he was. Without Judah's repentance, the reconciliation of God's people to one another for the blessing of the nations, for the for the prospering of the glory of God, would not have come to fruition. Repentance, Judah's complete turnaround, is God's plan of preservation for Jacob's family, the nation of Israel, and for us. Why? Jesus is called the Lion of Judah for a reason. He's called the Lion of Judah in Revelation for a purpose. Judah's saved here so that the Messiah's line might be carried on. And because Judah repents, God's people are preserved forever. Repentance is the result of truly understanding one's own sin. And it is what we are driven to do when we see our sinfulness, uh, the sinfulness of our sin, and against the infinite, holy Creator God, is the mechanism by which we are restored to God. And what I mean is this: when our hearts are regenerated and we are confronted with our sin, we don't say things like, "Well, it was that woman, that woman over there did it." We say, like Judah, "Let me take up my cross and follow hard after Jesus." Our mode of living is not one that says and claims, I have repented. I did it once. It's the one that says, I am repentant. Meaning that you continually live in light of the mercy and grace of God who has has saved you, who has brought you mercy and grace because of the constant repentance that you have because you have been saved in Christ Jesus. See, God promises to give his people new hearts, in Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31, to renew their minds through his word and through his spirit, Romans 12, 1, 2. It is those who are poor in spirit, the ones who need a savior, know who they are, are the ones that have promised the kingdom. If we follow the logic of scripture, we understand that God's promises preserve God's people. We could say it like this, God's covenant secures God's people, We could say God's providence, God's sovereignty, God's holiness, God's immutability, God's lots of things you could put in there. Preserve God's people. But in this case, we see that God's promises preserve his people. And he uses means to drive us to repent of our sinfulness, of our prideful dispositions and run hard after him for his glory alone. Repentance is God's plan for preservation. Point number three, Reconciliation is God's picture of preservation. So what happens when we repent? What happens when the reality of sin comes into our lives and we repent of that sin? We're reconciled to God. God uses means to drive us to repent of our pride and sin. But the good news is not that you repented, right? It's the good news that God has reconciled you to himself. Reconciliation of God's people to himself is God's picture of preservation. The whole of chapter 45 kind of plays this out for us. It describes a wonderful picture of God reconciling Joseph to his estranged brothers. And after hearing Judas plead for mercy for his father and accepting him as a substitute for Benjamin, Joseph is overcome with compassion and he drops the act immediately. Throws him a whole new curveball and says, I'm Joseph, the guy you sold into slavery. And he says something so compassionate. In 45, 5 to 8, he says, God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land for these two years. And there are five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. Notice, why did he say that? For you, a remnant on earth. He's promised, because God's promised Abraham to make him a blessing to the nations. And if the nations don't exist, who is he there to bless? Who is there to bless? So he preserves a remnant for on earth for them. And to keep alive for you, many survivors. So it was not you who sent near, but God. Joseph knows the goodness of God. His providential hand. How he preserves him through every trial. And now his brothers, who believed that he was dead, at least nowhere near him, are standing with Joseph. They're in his house. And they're seeing that God's testimony to his preserving grace is real. Notice in 45.5, he forgives his brothers. He forgives them and says this at the very beginning of 5, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. His heart of forgiveness is there. He does exactly what is right. He puts the glory back to God and says without God, none of this would have happened. Without God, you would not have a land. You would not have a people you would not have the ability to bless the nations. Joseph forgives forgives his brothers for their sins against him and glorifies God for preserving them and the nations to display his goodness. Joseph even goes so far, further in our text, to give them something that they never gave him. He goes so far to give them not only food for their journey, but provisions for the return journey to Egypt. He speaks for, with Pharaoh on their behalf and secures to them the best of the land, Goshen. Ultimately, he, Joseph, gives them rest when they did nothing but give him heartache. He has so much mercy upon them and provides an inheritance for them that they might be a blessing to the nations. See, God uses heartbreak, the heartbreak of losing a child, the trial of slavery, hardship of famine, the possibility of self-sacrifice, all for the reconciliation of his people so that the Messiah might come to the world to bless the nations. He breaks the heart of the prideful and he elevates them to joy. He lays waste to a pagan nation, nation to preserve a remnant for his glory. He wounds and binds up. He shatters the proud and gives grace to the humble. He providentially directs all things so that his name and his glory would, be, would abound across the earth. God's promise to never leave or forsake Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was continuing to be fulfilled. And God is making them a great nation to bless all the nations of the earth. Reconciliation its God's plan of preservation. Reconciliation is God's plan of preservation. But Judah was not the first one to willingly do as God directed him. Think Abraham. What did he do? He, when he was called, he got up from earth. And he left. Right? What did he do when he went up to Mount uh, Moriah? He took his son to sacrifice him. Right? He does thing, they do things like this. But Judah's transformation is very unique until Christ arrives on the scene. See, Judah offers himself up at, for the apparent sin of Benjamin and his own personal guilt. Jesus had no guilt or stain of sin. And yet he offers himself for the world. For you and me, those who believe. So Jesus willingly came to earth in his incarnation. He came, he left his throne in heaven, came as a baby, lived a perfect life, sinless in every way, died the death of a substitute for his people, took their sin upon himself, forsake all earthly comfort for the Father's glory, rose again on the third day. This is the good news. This is the good news that he is not dead any longer but he defeated death, demonstrating he was Lord over the thing that the the brothers actually pronounced upon themselves. In our place condemned, he stood. That's the good news. That's the good news. Jesus took the responsibility and the consequences for our guilt and turned them for his Father's glory, purified his bride, and brought his people to himself. That's what he's doing today. And if you're not a believer in this room, and, and within the sound of my voice, this story might just sound like a thing, a, a nice ending. A nice, you know, uh, rising action, falling action, apex of the story. Even conflict resolution, anything. You can call it anything. But the problem is, is, it's none of that. It's your story if you choose to believe in Christ Jesus. If you're an unbeliever, you must do something with this gospel that you've heard. If you believe that Christ is your Savior, that he has drunk the silver cup of judgment for you, you might repent and believe in Jesus Christ and be given eternal life and freedom in his name. But if you don't, you will drink your own silver cup of judgment and the wrath of God will be eternally poured out on you. Come to the Savior. As a believer in this room, this should be one of the most encouraging things you've ever heard. That you no longer have your sins counted against you, but you have been given provisions to not only do what he has done here and doing through you here, but he has provided you a place of rest eternally in Christ Jesus' name. So no matter what sin you've committed, I promise it's not murder, selling your brothers into slavery. It's not uh, acting like or, you know, basically acting like everything's okay. It's, I promise it's not taking your daughter-in-law for a prostitute. I promise. But, even if it is, Jesus paid for that too, if you believe in him. Your pride must be laid down. Our pride still kind of resides. It's something we struggle with. But our hearts are being renewed day by day as we read his word. See, so pride blinds his people from grasping his promises, but pride binds the whole world to the promises of God, right? Now, the pride manifests itself in a whole bunch of ways from the LGBTQ plus movement to abortion to all the way to saying, I don't need anybody in the church to help me when brothers and sisters stand ready and waiting. Some of you know, some of you know the blessing it is that the brothers and sisters of the church can rally around to you because of what Christ did. So it's not just them. It can be you too. And you, forsaking your selfish desires to be okay with yourself, need to repent of that too. Lay behind those dying weights, those those things that drag you down so that you might glorify your Father's name and ask for help. It may be look like recognizing in your life what is and is not God glorifying. It might be as simple as going, is this habit that I have, whatever that habit is, um, glorifying God because here's your two purposes in life. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you, those two things are not being accomplished, that's a good grid to start with. Is this helping me love the Lord your God? Is it helping others love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Or is it taking you away from it? We also need to repent, number two, of our selfish endeavors. The things that we do, the things that take us away from the body of Christ, the things that keep us from actually experiencing the complete joy in his name, which is found here on earth now. But it will ultimately be secured forever. Sometimes it might look like forsaking leisure time, so that you might actually be able to look and see how God is shaping you, so you might shape others. That looks like this, fathers. It might look like putting away something that you enjoy doing, so that you might grow in your fatherhood, right? Learning to love your children better. It might look like, as a man, it might look like loving your wife well, instead of ignoring her. In your leisure activities. It might look like this. It might look like not actually making sure your house is spick and span and perfect all the time, ladies. It might look like saying, actually, what's more important to me? That my children and my husband who love the Lord and their God with all their heart, told mind, and strength. And it might look like saying, you know, forsaking that time that you used to clean or whatever else to actually love on them and show them Christ's undying favor. It might look like as a grandma, grandpa in this room, it might look like not uh, spending your time in uh, leisure activities and traveling all over, but being available for your kids and their grandchildren and your great grandchildren so that you might be able to turn them to faith. That's your job. It's the only reason why you're still on this earth. No offense. But it's so you can show them Christ Jesus. It's not to actually go to Cocoa Beach. Or wherever else you like to go. It looks like in repenting of our selfish endeavors. It almost looks like repenting of our concealed sins. You hear this from Proverbs 28:13. Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. That's very true of the brothers. Did they prosper at all? No, they were miserable. But get this: but he who confesses and forsakes them, their sins will obtain mercy. That's good news. Judas selfishly sought to get what he wanted from everyone around him, but his heart changed. His mind was made alive, and he willingly forsook everything he wanted, repented of his pride, and went after the sake of another. He went and did what he would never have done and obtained the mercy of God through Joseph. Right? Right? We, need, we too need to repent and confess our sins against others so that we might obtain the blessing of mercy. And that brings us to our third and final thing. And we must reconcile with those who are on our behalf. That God has placed there for our good, for the bringing of us to him and us helping to bring others to him. Sanctification is what I'm talking about. See, when we forsake our sin and repent of our ways, it looks like we're forsaking the temporary satisfaction that looks like holding other people at arm's distance, or it looks like uh, pursuing our leisurely activities and pursuing the rest, the rest like our eternal rest in Christ Jesus, and helping others do the same. See, a lot of this looks like just being simple Bible people. When when your brother has wronged you, what do you do? Go to him and you tell him his sin. If he doesn't repent, what do you do? You take another so there might be a witness. And if you're on the receiving end of this, guess what? You are not thick and span clean. Right? You need to repent of something. Your, your life should not be, I repented, but I am repentant. And so ask the father, what have I done? How have I offended this brother? Especially if it's true. If it's not true, then don't repent of something that's not true. Don't. That's actually sin in of itself. But, here's the deal. Repent of the actual sins. Don't repent of circumstantial things. here's Here's another real quick clue. Repentance doesn't look like saying, I'm sorry that all this happened. Repentance looks like, I'm sorry for lying. I'm sorry for stealing. I'm sorry for my immorality. It's an objective thing that you are repenting of. Forgive me for my sin that I have committed. Not, forgive me because it blew up. You see the difference? You can't repent of the other one. You can't repent of the circumstantial, subjective things that happened afterward. You can only repent of what you've actually done to, the, to your brother. And that is how we're designed first to be reconciled to one another. If you're a Christian in this room, that's your responsibility. is to be reconciled to, be, to one another so that your reconciliation with God might be made known to the whole world. And the hope of that Reconciliation with God would go to the nations. First, inside of your house and then all the way out to the furthest corners of the earth. See, no one is righteous. No, not one. We all have guilt. But on the basis of Christ's work, we can be reconciled to him. We have a merciful Savior who has drank the bitter cup of judgment for us. So let's call one another to repentance. Martin Luther finally realized this, that his sin could not be covered over by doing penance, by doing perpetual... He was on a hamster wheel, just over and over and over, tripping over himself. It could only be dealt with the grace of God, by the grace of God, through faith in Christ Jesus, substitutionary atonement for his life. That's what we're about to celebrate. That's why we do communion every week. It's so that you might remember... And be reminded of the substitutionary atonement of Christ for you on your behalf. It's the good news lived out. So, as we come to communion, I want you to hear something. Uh, if you haven't heard the gospel so far, you can be reconciled to God. Because that's your greatest need. It's There is no other need. You're not, your hunger is not that great of a need as much as it your requirement for being reconciled to God. You have offended him and you needed reconciliation with him so that you might live eternally. You do that through belief in Christ Jesus. His his work, his person, it paid for your sin. We sang it this morning. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. That's the gospel in a lot of ways. Let's run hard after him. Because then and only then can... We grasp God's promise of life that uh, Christ provides. Only then can we truly understand that our pride once blinded us from grasping God's wonderful promise. And we can be a part of that preserved people. Let's pray. May your glory know.